Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. On this episode of Jaws of Justice, host David Bell speaks with Amanda Knightley, also known as Misa on Wheels. They talk about the connection between empathy and disability. Amanda is the most famous cosplayer on Wheelers, Misa, and she is also a disability advocate. Cosplay is the art of dressing up as your favorite character. Amanda Misa finally discovered cosplay while in college, and she hasn't looked back since. Love cosplay, love your body is her motto, and she has found cosplay to be more than just a fun thing to do, but a great way to divert people's attention to more important things. She knows she'll get stared at regardless. She uses a wheelchair. So why not give them something to really stare at? She proves to other disabled cosplayers that anything is possible. Inclusion is not like a light switch that simply gets turned on or off. It's more like a dimmer switch that you push forward into the light with intentionality, focus, and empathy. We can work on changing our culture. All people have value and are respected and openly welcomed. We acknowledge, understand, and embrace the widespread nature of disability. Disability touches every demographic category, gender, age, race, sexual orientation, etc., and impacts most people eventually through accident, illness, or aging. We'll play our calendar at the midpoint of the hour. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning, this is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. During our last episode, we spoke with Maria Parker, the CEO of Cruise Bike and the author of Do Tough on how to turn empathy into action. As I indicated in the last show, I actually ride a cruise bike, and it's a type of recumbent bike, and I ride on the same wheels as an upright bike with the same basic machinery. The only difference is my body's leaned backwards. It takes the pressure off what I'll call my undercarriage, as well as my wrists and shoulders. Interestingly, though, I'm often asked by people that see me riding, what's wrong with you that you need to ride this type of bike? And my initial response is something to the effect of how much time do you have? And then, of course, I take it to a deeper level, and I start to ask the question to myself of why difference is necessarily associated with something wrong. And to some extent, I know some of my listeners may be wondering the relevance to law and our society about this topic, and so I'll direct your attention to the Equal Protection Clause, which in fact requires governments to provide reasons for dividing people by labels and treating them differently. But to help us explore a conceptual framework to understand such terms as difference and disability in the context of empathy, I have asked Amanda Knightley to join us today. Known by her Facebook moniker, Misa on Wheels, Amanda is a disability advocate whose daily posts on Facebook reach more than 50,000 people. Amanda, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure. If you could briefly talk a little bit about yourself, kind of where you grew up and your current area of study. Absolutely. I grew up in New Hampshire, southern New Hampshire, just under an hour from Boston. Um, I was an undergrad and graduated in 2007, and I'm actually heading back to grad school at Southern New Hampshire University to study industrial organizational psychology in the fall. During a prior conversation, you mentioned something referred to as Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. What is that and how is it relevant to your life experience? 
So Sharka to or CMT for short, I always like to jokingly point out has nothing to do with teeth, hence the uh, hence the name. It's just named after the doctors who founded it. Um, I was diagnosed with this condition when I was two years old. And what it basically is, is a form of degenerative peripheral neuropathy, which is a really fancy way of saying my lower arms and lower legs are very weak due to a lack of a working motor nerve. So growing up, um, again, I was diagnosed at two. And by the time I reached age 10, I had to start using a wheelchair full time to get around. In terms of your own memory of what was going on with yourself, how would you describe it in terms of going through that process? Because at the same time, you're learning that you you have hands and arms and, and legs and feet and identifying with yourself and then how to use them and move them, you're losing that ability. Do you have a memory of that? And if, if you do, could you help us understand the process that you went through? Absolutely. No, that's a great question. And while everyone's experience is going to be very different, I actually remember it very vividly. Um, I remember my parents were very um, transparent with me growing up. I was always advised what was going to happen and, you know, educated, even in terms of being a young child and putting it in very simple terms, like you might not be able to walk one day or, you know, this is what you're going to notice. And I don't know, I remember the transition not being as quote unquote scary as it sounds. I think that education and that, you know, gentle handling of something very serious by my parents really helped me accept and know what I was getting into the best I could at that age. And in terms of the treatment that you received from your classmates, I mean, I remember growing up and being that in that age group and I was not athletic, right? It wasn't the best looking the whole bit. And so, you know, kids can certainly be mean and, and they and they pick on difference. At least they did with me. So I have to assume, Amanda, that that, that would have also been a part of your experience. Definitely. I feel like middle school was probably the worst. Um, elementary school was kind of that initial transition into, oh, I'm in a wheelchair now. And kids being that age tend to be more curious rather than mean or malicious. By the time I had reached middle school, that's kind of when I really saw that shift in attitudes and behaviors. Everyone's kind of focused on fitting in. And when you have any type of major visible physical difference, um, you're definitely going to stand out. And that can be very isolating in its own way. And I think from an early age, I kind of combated that with being very outgoing and kind of finding the people who fit in with me and the people that were okay with that. And that really got me through it. And so you, you said you started using a wheelchair at age 10? Correct. And with regard to the school you were at, activities that you would go to, places your parents would take you, at that age in a wheelchair, were you starting to notice difficulties in terms of the environment around you and how you would be able to move through it on a day-to-day -day basis? Definitely. And luckily for me, I was never really a sports gal um, other than extreme sports, which we'll talk about later. Sure. Um, but, but I was always more into the arts and art club, drama club. So luckily, very luckily, a lot of my interests um, and um, environments allowed me to participate in those activities without too much of an issue. Um, but yeah, you could definitely, you know, notice that shift and notice even the school itself, getting around and having a plan to leave class five minutes early and maybe potentially missing something because I need to avoid the crowd or not be late to my next class. So kind of logistic things like that kind of became the pain point. In some of your Facebook posts, and, I, and we'll talk about those in more detail later, and I really enjoy them because they're just little bits of information. 
But one of them is certainly uh, goes to the idea of pity. And I think you put in there that you're not looking and, and disabled people aren't looking to be pitied. But I, I, I would have to imagine at least at that age, with teachers, perhaps even students, parents of students who maybe certainly weren't um, as knowledgeable as we would hope they would be, that, that that word or that feeling certainly was projected at you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 100%. Um, I remember that through school, kind of the sympathetic looks and the, oh, you're so brave and just... Yeah, definitely friends of parents. For the most part, I would say my parents' friends were pretty cool and uh, <laughs> to use that term and uh, kind of normalized it in a way, but definitely, you know, parents of friends and uh, teachers for the most part, pretty good, but there were definitely the one-off occasions. And when that happens as a kid, I feel like that's very confusing because, you know, you're taught like, uh, you know, these are adults, these are the authority figures. And when they're kind of singling you out in a way, it can become a very odd situation and kind of confusing and hard to process at that age. And so in, w- in what way is it confusing? And, and I guess, and what's the impact on you? So these adults are in their, in their what, in their words, in their facial expressions are suggesting you're different, something's wrong, we should be pitting you. But yet you're saying you're facing what on the other side? Help us, help me if you don't mind understand that. Definitely. I would say the best example I have of it that might uh, paint the picture was I remember being in gym class in, uh, I want to say middle school, maybe sixth or seventh grade. And um, I loved playing volleyball and volleyball is a very, uh, very low impact sport for the most part. Um, I can definitely uh, hold my own even sitting down and whack the ball out of the way when needed. And I remember we had this gym teacher assistant and she would just literally hover over me and just like whack the ball and get other kids in trouble if they threw the ball my way and I was just like whoa this is this is a little bit strange so that was kind of one of the biggest uh most significant moments I remember of you know being singled out or being pitied quote unquote all right if, if we could now talk about some other words and, and the reason why I, I want to in my own mind is you know I personally believe that the words we use define and then kind of solidify the way in which we view the world around us and so I personally have struggled with the word disability because on the one hand, there seems to be a way, a need to identify a group of people that may need some consideration from the majority, kind of almost a marker to say, all right, this group, we need to make sure that this group is included in whatever decision-making, perhaps the planning of a physical space as an example. On the other on the other hand, I can't help but wonder if it also carries a connotation with it, or at least it could be read into it, that something is wrong, which, which defies my own belief, you know, at least ideally, and how I want to treat others. But, and, and by the way, I, I will point out, I, I oppose from July 19th of 2023, you note the terms, quote, differently abled, handicapped, handy, capable, and special needs exist to make non-disabled people more comfortable with the concept of disability. And so here I am falling into that mess right now, but, I, but I'm okay with it. And I appreciate you being open to discuss it. So if we could briefly talk about the word disabled, and then the post that you put here about why this discomfort is only for people that are non-disabled. Absolutely. So I think the biggest thing to remember with that, and the thing I love to say, almost like one of my mantras is disabled isn't a dirty word. And what I mean by that is disabled is just another descriptor. So I find that lots of folks who are not disabled or don't have a disability uh, tend to kind of beat around the bush when it comes to using that word and just kind of calling something as it is. And I find that the label itself in terms of, you know, separating groups or calling uh, individuals out, 
I find that a term like disabled kind of helps the community find each other and unify versus singling ourselves out from the rest of the population. So so when you're saying it that way, you're saying it's more of a, a term to be used a term that is used internally within the group and, and is more certainly more meaningful there than used from outside the group to identify the group? So I think that's how it had actually started. Disabled people started getting comfortable with using the term themselves. And the reason for that, this whole study that I learned about and this whole concept um, called the social model of disability versus the medical model. And basically meaning it's uh, society and the societal barriers that cause more of a disability than the actual medical disability, where a medical model of disability is focused on the person being disabled, on the disability, basically assuming there's a problem with the person rather than the surroundings that inhibit them to be independent and live their life. When we talked before in the pre-interview, that you know that introduction to me of that kind of was a really mind-altering experience. In that, at least as to a subset, and we'll talk about the pushback I got from others on this, but at least as to a subset of individuals, the term disability is what the space imposes on people versus the characteristic of the person themselves. And so, if we can take that into kind of practical examples maybe to help individuals that are out there listening going, wait, what, what's, what are they saying? Absolutely. So I think my biggest example for this one would be, you know, if you were in a room and you're trying to get upstairs and there's stairs there, um, that's more disabling for this example's sake than my actual medical condition. And what I mean by that is with my condition with CMT, I use a wheelchair full time. I've got my wheelchair. I, now I can, I'm aware of what's going on. I'm good to go as long as the uh, environment allows for it. But when there's stairs in the way, it's no longer, you know, free rolling and independence. It's like, oh, hey, I, you know, I have this disability kind of hold up moment. And I find that in my personal experience, uh, things like that are way more disabling than my actual condition. What's fascinating about that is, is that it's almost as if you're in this room with other individuals who may be moving around by, by walking. Uh, maybe in a wheelchair, that the distinction between those two ways of moving in that space only become relevant when there's only stairs, right? Because it's, and that then creates the distinction, the physical difference in space, or let me rephrase that, the way in which the space is designed winds up imposing, if you will, a, a division amongst two groups. We're going to treat this group differently than this group. And, but for that, and had there been ramps or other mechanisms by which to, for people to move around, regardless of their how they're moving around, that difference wouldn't necessarily be relevant. That's absolutely correct. And that's what I found from my personal experience as well. Like if I'm on a walk and I'm cruising somewhere or on a walk, I know I use that term, but on a roll technically. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Potato, potato. Um, but my point is, if I'm, you know, going down the sidewalk, there's no cracks, there's no steps, there's a curb cut for me to get down. I'm not even thinking about the fact that I'm sitting in a chair rolling. I'm just going about my day. But if I'm, you know, in this old broken down part of town and there's a sidewalk chunks of bricks everywhere and I'm constantly either having to look down or just not able to access the space at all, it makes me much more conscious of the fact that, wow, I have a much more difficult time getting around. But it's due to that external factor. And so... You talked about in a previous discussion about things that society imposes. And one of the things you brought up with me would be like a stalls in the restroom, for example, 
would be have a great amount of space, but what? The, the, what would the issue then be? Definitely. So bathrooms are one of my favorite examples when it, when it comes to accessibility because, oh goodness, I've seen a number of uh, situations. So in this case, I would say one imposition, the most common one is the 500 pound door, I like to call it. So this is when the bathroom is set up perfectly. The accessible stall is great. The mirrors are low so I can actually check and make sure there's not food in my teeth. But then when I go to leave, can't get the door open or have a lot of time, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of trouble getting the door open. So it's just these one-off little nuances or these things that are overlooked that can absolutely kind of kill the accessibility of the whole area at that point. And, and, and when that happens, what happens within your mind? And, and let me hypothesize here and then I'd ask you that there may be at some point you just wind up getting used to it because you have to deal with it so much. But I have to wonder if at some point you're just like, what the hell? I mean, it, it almost takes you out of the moment for a sec while you're wondering why for the hundred millionth time they couldn't figure out how to do a door that can be opened by everyone. I I guess what I'm saying is, is it the, is it the, not only is it making you aware of the situation, is it also reminding you that you're in a group that's necessarily not being fully uh, recognized? And then further, does that whole thought process then take you out of the moment for a little bit? Yes, definitely. And I think it depends on the day for myself personally. Like if I'm, you know, in a really good mood, having a good day, it's kind of just one of those things I've become, I guess, numb to in a sense where like you mentioned, when it's the hundred thousand time where you've dealt with it, it's like, oh, all right, another heavy door, another install that's broken that I can't use. But definitely. And, you know, it, maybe if I'm not having the best there, I'm not, you know, in the best uh state of mind maybe the stall was um not set up right or the toilet was way too low to the ground or there wasn't toilet paper in the handicapped stall but in every other stall we were good um that can yeah that can definitely kind of be the cherry on the sunday of a uh, crappy huh. situation <laughs> you know so in the other side of this though i will say so i i had a, a lunch with a friend the other day and i brought up our discussion because i was very interested in working out some things i wanted to talk to you about and he said to me he said listen i've got a family member who's autistic. And he say, he says, I, this whole word distinction you're going through, David, is frankly, well, he used a term I'm not going to use on the radio because he's like, listen, my family member knows that she's disabled and I know she's disabled and you're playing word games here with this. And so how would you, how would you help me if possible, kind of understand his point, but yet certainly take into account what you're saying? No, I would say it's always a tough situation because disability is something that's very personalized to every person and every kind of family member going through that. Luckily, I find that, you know, my relationship with my own condition and my own needs has been very positive overall. It's just kind of something I deal with. It's almost like background at this point. But I feel like for someone who maybe is either newly diagnosed or dealing with something internalized, um, maybe an invisible disability or something more on the cognitive end, a lot of folks will notice that disability maybe more in a sense than I would, where, like I mentioned, if I'm going about my day and there's no physical barriers or access issues in the environment, I'm really not thinking about my disability. Whereas maybe if that's something more internal or something more in the forefront for them, they're going to relate more as, you know, maybe quote unquote medically disabled to follow that model. But in terms of, and I'm just, I'm thinking through here, certainly the structure of a physical structure of a building reminds you of the difference. And if it wasn't there, you're not really going to be thinking about it because there's no reason to. 
I have to wonder if in terms of what we're calling an invisible disability, or at least a disability that is not apparent by use of a wheelchair, for example, uh, something that's going on, you mentioned internally, that my reaction to that person, my facial reactions, my inability to understand that person, what that person's going through, would seem to do the very same thing we were talking about before, meaning it would seem to call out to that person, you're different, and thereby cause the same reaction that you experience when go- in a, being in a physical space that is not uh, accessible to you. Definitely. I feel like, yeah, with this... I would still say it kind of goes back to the whole idea that, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's more on the forefront of their mind and they're, you know, identifying more as medically disabled, but also to go to your point about um, the whole difference between, you know, segregating groups and seeing each other as different. Difference is not necessarily a bad thing, but if somebody is feeling maybe labeled or feeling as though they're being called out as disabled in a negative way, I feel like that's going to have a negative impact on them. How would you refer to me when I'm trying to distinguish me and my my ability to move about a space by walking rather than by wheelchair? So I find that lately the most like quote unquote accepted terms are able-bodied or disabled. So those are the terms I tend to use to kind of distinguish that. But also that can kind of tread some dangerous territory in the sense that what if you had an individual disability and I wasn't aware of that. So it's always it's always better to not assume. But I would definitely you know if you identify yourself as able-bodied, then hey, that's our distinction. Wonderful. And I appreciate that. And I love the idea of you saying that, you know what, as to me, I own that term as to how I want to define myself. And I like that very much a self-affirming idea, right? So what are some other areas? I know uh, the, there's a big news on your Facebook page, by the way, Misa on Wheels is your moniker, about airlines. So there has been a lot up in the air, as we'll say, <laughs> in regards to air travel and accessibility. One of the most significant stories to come out of this year is the concept of someone being able to remain seated in their wheelchair for the duration of the plane ride and on the plane itself, as well as actually being able to use the bathroom. Is, is that an ADA requirement or is that an exemption from ADA or how does that, why hasn't that been done yet? Why are we still waiting for it? So my understanding is it's actually under a different act, and I believe it's something like the Air Carriers Act. It's separate from the ADA, essentially, and I am not the most well-versed in that one, but I know it definitely doesn't fall under the ADA umbrella, but there's been a lot of push, obviously, uh, for being able to use the restroom and being able to, you know, stay in your chair, especially for folks who aren't able to transfer into a seat. Um, so, yeah, definitely. As we come to the close of the first half hour of our show, I was hoping that you could share an experience that you related to me, one that occurred in a laundry room and one that I think encapsulates kind of this this attitude that we've talked about uh, throughout the first half hour. And listeners, as you hear this story, I would ask you to also think about how attitudes like this then make their way into the creation of the very physical spaces that have the potential to separate us rather than bring us together. Definitely. So... Back in my old apartment, I was doing laundry one day, um, completely independently. Uh, The way I do laundry as a power chair user is I grab my hamper and I stick it on my footrest and I sit cross legs. So I have a nice little hamper stand and I go about my business and get my load done. This woman who also lived in the apartment, I'd maybe seen once or twice in passing, uh, came up to me while I'm mid, you know, 
putting whatever it is I'm putting in the laundry machine in and uh, starts asking if she can pray for me and just starts going at it just in the middle of the laundry room, just praying for my healing and uh, just creating this really uncomfortable scene. It, but in addition to, did she, did she, she put her hands on you? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, she did. I believe it was on my hand or on my knee, but it was yeah, definitely physical, physical contact. Physical contact, unwanted contact. But then in that situation, how do you, I, I know when we talked, you just kind of took it, I get right? You're just like, all right, whatever, I'll just, but how, what's going on in your mind while this is happening after you got over the discomfort of someone you don't know touching you without being asked or without asking, I guess. Oh, yeah. I mean, like you had mentioned, it's uh, like we had talked about, it's that initial mortification of, wait, did that just happen? <laughs> You're kind of frozen for a moment. And I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, maybe after five and 10 minutes, you start feel questioning, like, what could I have done differently? Could I have done every, you know, could I have done something differently? Should I have done something differently? Um, you know, obviously a very inappropriate interaction on their part. But, you know, I think in that moment, it was just the initial shock. And once that had subsided, you know, kind of coming up with something quirky and maybe some comebacks for the quote unquote next time it happens. But I think when you get caught off guard like that, as so many people have, um, you know, friends of mine and other testimonies, it's it's kind of just a freeze moment where it's like, is this really happening? So if if this woman were to reappear right now, what would you say to that? What would you say to her? You know, frankly, I would tell her, you know, I appreciate the kind thoughts and the positive energy, but my life is awesome and I really don't need the quote unquote healing. But I would I would thank her and kind of send her on her way. <laughs> this is David Bell. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Amanda Knightley. She's a disability advocate. In the first half hour, we've talked to Amanda about a framework in which to understand different terms in this space and how it works together with empathy to give us all a better understanding. In the second half hour, uh, we'll talk to Amanda more about empathy and how some of the phrases that she's put forth on her Facebook page help us to better understand her situation and the situation of others. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Hi, I'm Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. Counterspin couldn't exist without stations like KKFI that put community first. We're proud to air every Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. And if you miss it, you can find it at kkfi.org. That's Counterspin every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. right here on KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Take care of yourself and others, and take precaution to beat the heat this season. Some helpful tips to stay safe. Kansas City's community centers are open as cooling centers during regular business hours. In addition, many of the city's swimming pools and spray grounds are open and can provide relief. Buses and the streetcar are air-conditioned. You can take a ride in those to cool off. And be sure to check on your neighbors, friends, and relatives regularly. For more resources and info on how to stay cool this season, go online to kcmo.gov forward slash heat. This message is a public service of KKFI. Here's a calendar for the week of August 28th. 
Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. For information about Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense meetings this week, you can go to momsdemandaction.org. Everyone's welcome, mothers and others. Wednesday, August 29th, 4.30 to 6.30 p.m., Seasonal Sips with the Greater Kansas City Women's Political Caucus is at Enzo Bistro, 20 East 5th, Kansas City, Missouri. Greater Kansas City Women's Political Caucus invites all for a casual series of laid-back happy hours at various locally-owned restaurants and businesses. You can bring your friends and enjoy an evening of community building and conversation. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events you can attend. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at Lawrence Progressive Calendar blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. Items listed in this calendar can also be found on this episode's page, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to our program. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Amanda Knightley. She's a disability advocate. In the first half hour, Amanda talked to us about how physical spaces and the attitudes of people within those spaces can actually be more disabling than whatever condition we may otherwise describe as the disability. In this half hour, we're going to talk a little bit more about empathy and how we can learn to understand and appreciate differences without those differences becoming destructive. I want to talk about some of your posts on Facebook and how I came to know you. So I'm scrolling through Facebook and Facebook serves me up one of your posts thinking that I would be interested and like the algorithm like knows me, which is certainly scary. And this was from June 19th. It said, disabled people are allowed to have wants too not just needs. That's powerful. And that struck me and that that motivated me to reach out to you because I can infer from that statement, there's a tension there. And I was wondering if you could help me understand what, why you posted that, what you meant by it, and maybe how we can explore that a little bit more. I think my mindset at the time when I wrote that post was reading a lot of other folks with disabilities posts and kind of just stewing around and the whole idea behind that, I remember it very clearly, was just this whole idea that disabled people, you know, whether they're quote unquote on disability or receiving benefits, maybe not working, or someone like me who's, you know, going to school and working full time, you're allowed to want more than just the basics. So meaning, you know, even somebody who has the bare minimum is allowed to have those dreams and to go beyond what often most of society expects from someone with disability, which sadly can be the bare minimum. I'll give you an example of this. Um, I, you know, I had mentioned I'm going back to grad school in the fall, and there is an agency that sometimes helps fund uh, folks with disabilities and job resources and such. And 
a lot of the attitudes I found have been, well, you have a job now. Why do you need to go back to school? You know, why do you want more from that? And I feel like that was just such a great, quote unquote, great, I guess, but a kind of odd little tidbit of, wow, you know, is this really the attitude, you know, most of society has? Like, hey, you're doing okay, but I want to do great. And I think that was really what spurred that post that day. It's as if somebody else imposing, I don't know, their ideal on you, it serves as a limitation in a way. The the person may mean it in a I guess a positive way, but it, but it, it's such a limiting way, right? It's it's almost like our expectations are diminished some way, which goes back to what we were talking about before that somehow that the chair suggests something wrong, which is of course it doesn't, but at the same time it sounds like the attitude is suggesting from that person's view that it that you're limited in some way. Absolutely. And to go back to that as well, this this whole idea of, you know, disability being a difference rather than a negative quality or hindrance. You know, I would say I'm disabled, just like I would say I have brown or I have blonde hair. It's just another quality, another defining feature and not something that defines me so much as a person as you know like a sentence it's more of a oh that's just another characteristic something i deal with in life so and again going back to our discussion the first half hour in that moment talking about going to school you know getting your masters moving on to a career that you're maybe inspired to do in that conversation in that moment whatever was going on the fact that you're in a wheelchair or the fact that you may be part of the disabled community was irrelevant and and yet it was it was brought into the situation not by you but it brought into the situation by that other person that that in a way is what we were talking about before of uh, the term dis- disabled being imposed upon you by outside forces mm-hmm. absolutely and just like you know a set of stairs or a huge crack in the sidewalk that you can't avoid and need to go around the attitudes of society can be just as much a hindering factor and just as much of an external factor when it comes to defining myself as disabled. June 26th post, you put, there's a picture of a button and the button has what I, like a a silver button in it. And there's a a blue stick figure-ish person in a a wheelchair. And there's a a post-it note over where the person's legs would be showing a it looks like a fin. And the phrase that you put on there is equal access is not, quote, special treatment. Could you help me uh, understand a little bit more? First of all, that phrase that you used, but also the, the post-it note. Definitely. So I want to address the post-it note picture first. That was actually just the attention grabber photo. I've always loved that photo. <laughs> Wait, I was going to, I had a whole analysis of meaning and, and purpose, and I had created the whole show on <laughs> And then it's, it was just to get my attention. Well, thanks, Amanda. It worked. But keep going. Oh, you're welcome. Right. And well, you know, there is a deeper part to that. I do like mermaids, so hence the fins. <laughs> That's great. I actually just used it as a cute image. But, uh, Wonderful. So the whole idea of uh, equal access isn't special treatment. Um, that's, you know, another one of those huge external factors that I've dealt with again and again. And it kind of also goes back to the whole idea we just talked about of, you know, kind of disabled people not having to accept the bare minimum of, you know, the whole attitude of maybe a business owner being like, oh, well, we have a bathroom and, you know, the door is wide enough, but it weighs 500 pounds. Why isn't that good enough for you? And, you know, you, you know, basically this whole idea of just because you have a difference, just because you have a disability, you don't need to settle for it. And also, 
in terms of the equal treatment and equal access, just this whole idea of that's something, you know, everyone should be entitled to. It shouldn't even be a question. But when disabled people bring that up, oftentimes, it's met with a lot of defensive, I'm sorry, it's met with a lot of defensiveness and a lot of hostility in some cases. And it's- Why do you think that is? I mean, and I'm asking you to explain me, but why do you think that, if you could speculate as to why? I think, you know, from my own experience, I would say this whole, you know, maybe even fear of, you know, something that's different, this whole concept and this maybe idea of some folks and pushback to be like, you know, that's never going to be my situation. I'm never going to need that. I'm never, you know, going to have to rely on these resources or have to worry about accessibility. And I think that whole fear often kind of causes people to bury their head in the ground and be like, you know, if this isn't my problem, I don't need to deal with this. Why are you bringing it up? So I think that might be a huge motivator behind those attitudes. And, and so the fear is actually a, an attempt to to push you away, because if I have to deal with the issue what that most recognition that that I or a loved one may very well be in that situation. Whereas if I can push it away, at least mentally, I, out of sight, out of mind to a certain extent, that somehow I can convince myself to believe I, I'll never be uh, subjected to, I'll never have to deal with that situation. That's exactly right. And like you and I had talked about previously, this whole idea of willful ignorance and people just choosing not to accept that and maybe you know, whether that's a level of fear or discomfort or whatever it may be, instead of choosing to look at it like, hey, you know, maybe that won't happen to me, but maybe it will. And if it does, then, hey, I'm going to want this to be accessible or I'm going to want to be treated with respect or equally. So I think some people just don't want to think about that. It makes them uncomfortable. And that's maybe where that hostility arises. You know, I, I we were talking about uh, before in the in the pre-interview. I was asking you what do you what you thought the barrier was, and you know, one of those barriers you brought up is I, I think sometimes it's it's hard. Well, maybe not. I was thinking it's hard for people to fully understand the situation that someone may be in, who, for example, is in a wheelchair. And you brought up a story to me that involved a mitten. Definitely. So when I was in college, um, I went to school on this old New England campus. I loved it, but it wasn't the most accessible place of places back in the day. And I remember there was this one building with this really old rickety lift inside, an old wheelchair lift. And in order to use the lift, and this again, this was actually the only way to get from lower campus where I lived up to upper campus where mostly everything was in terms of classes and things going on. So in order to use this old lift, you had to use this really itsy bitsy key to even access it and then pull the key out, then do the same thing on the inside. So basically put the key in twice just to use the elevator. And for someone like me with CMT, um, I have very, very uh, low motor skills and uh, (laughs) holding a key in itself is difficult. Trying to get it in and turn it multiple times a day maybe was a nightmare. So when I brought this up um, to some folks who, you know, had some say in that, they brought it to their higher ups and they they received some pushback. So they had actually persuaded this person to sit in a chair with mittens on, something to try to mimic the situation with my own hands, at least, you know, help them get a little bit more of an understanding. And they asked them, put the mittens on, hey, can you try to turn this key? And they absolutely could not do it. And uh Needless to say, the uh, lift ended up getting changed. So that was a positive thing to come out. 
and you know, I was, I was, as you were saying that, I was like, well, God, how is it, how is it that I would be able to understand what you were going through without you having to put me in a chair and put mittens on me to try some key thing on a, on a lift. And I, and of course the answer came to me as you're saying is just, David, why don't you just ask? And you know, <laughs> what do I mean? Ask. And then when I'm told, how about believe, or at least, or at least consider it in the framework of, of logic and reason. And what you're saying makes sense. It didn't seem like it needed someone to sit in a chair with a, with a, with a mitten on to, to get it. What do you think that barrier is even in that point where you have you, an educated person at their college, they obviously wanted you to be there. You're admitted, right? You're a student in good standing. You have explained yourself in words that can be understood that this is a problem. In order for the fix to occur, it requires the person to go past everything you've told them, everything you've said, and actually sit down in a chair with mittens on it. Why is that? It, to the extent, yeah, obviously we're speculating, but I, I'm curious as to your to your understanding of that. You know, I you know, I would love to know their perspective. And I don't know if this is not so much a case of fear and maybe willful ignorance and that whole sense of pushback, like, oh, you know, every other student's good. And, uh, you know, every other student's made it through okay. But there had only been, you know, I think less than five students with, you know, major physical disabilities at that point. So I don't know if it was, you know, kind of a willful ignorance uh, situation or, where that pushback was coming from, maybe just financial. Um, yeah, I really can't say, but I'm I'm glad they ended up putting the mittens on. <laughs> and again, I'm here. I'm asking you to explain someone else's experience, but you know, I certainly want to believe that everyone, people are good, or they 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 want to be known as good. In fact, that's everybody. I think, regardless of if they actually are helping others or not. But I can only, I don't know. I I I constantly see in this series on empathy and a lot of other things we discuss that. It's not that difficult if someone's telling you something, just listen to what they're saying. I mean, you can evaluate what they're saying, but listen to it the, the, because most of the time the groups that are in need of something, because it's, they're not being fully recognized, they're saying it and it's just a question of listening. It really is that easy listening and not even fully understanding and that's okay, you know? No one's going to fully understand what it's like and every nuance of my life, you know, without, you know, rolling in my wheels for the day. But, you know, just to, under, you know, understand to a point and to believe and to listen. And, you know, by listening, I think there does come a level of understanding with that. So I really do think it's that simple. And, and the other thing we've, we've talked about in prior shows is certainly the failure to interact with somebody who is different. Uh, for example, the failure of, a, of an able-bodied person to interact with someone who's in a wheelchair, as an example, the failure to have that conversation then breeds kind of this mystery aspect to it where there's guessing, maybe pushing away out of sight, out of mind. And it seems like that that lack of conversation or the lack of um, of interaction maybe causes some of the problem and then we're talking about the physical space not being accessible which then further which then further uh, which then creates further distance if you will and then it exacerbates the very problem i'm talking about absolutely and I think the point you have made as well i definitely believe you know most people want to do the right thing and most people do try to do the you know the right thing and what they find to be just and good um i think a lot of that comes from it's a two-parter you know, there are the physical barriers and also, you know, those attitudes and maybe lack of interaction. And with the whole idea of, you know, people wanting to do the good thing and not do harm comes, you know, this fear of, oh, what if I say the wrong thing? 
And I think that breeds a lot of awkward situations or maybe uncomfortable interactions where if there's more exposure and maybe more accessibility so they can have those interactions and more people can access the same space, I think that would create a much better outcome. Well, it's interesting that the discomfort, we talked about that because I brought up my own discomfort. I'm like, well, do I say disabled? In fact, when we, you and I were talking in the in the past, I'm trying to say, now, do I refer to myself as able-bodied or disabled? And of course, the only person that is perhaps uncomfortable here is me, right? I'm the one bringing the discomfort to it, not you. I am, which is certainly a fascinating dynamic uh, in, in all of it. One of the other things you said, maybe going to that, is, and this was on July 14th, 2023, you said, ableism is way more, quote, tragic than disability. Tell me about tell me about the word ableism, if you could, please, in terms of how you define it, and then what that phrase, what you intended that phrase to mean. So ableism, very simply put, is just discrimination against people with disabilities, or this overwhelming preference for people without disabilities or able-bodied folks. And in terms of that quote, um, there's this whole idea, and this goes back to the praying in the laundry room of, you know, disabled people, you know, need to be pitied and having a disability is such a tragedy. But when in reality, really these whole attitudes around, you know, disabled people, you know, are different, but not in terms of different, you know, I have brown hair, you have blonde hair differences. It's more for, you know, separate groups that will never understand each other. And I think the whole attitude of, you know, seeing disability as a tragedy. And I think for some folks, maybe they do. You know, if someone was in a traumatic accident, they're going to have a much different experience than me, who was, you know, brought up thinking of this almost in a positive light, in a realistic light that, you know, hey, you're going to use a wheelchair one day. That's okay. As opposed to someone who's dealing with that shock and maybe living through a tragedy. But also, you know, hopefully they're going to get through that and by you know overcoming the ableism per se or this um to word it differently these attitudes of you know disability is a tragedy you can't have a happy life if you have a disability i was i always found that that was much more you know tragic to coin the term again than the actual condition well i, I really appreciate that uh, explanation and how powerful attitudes outside of you people around you are to you i mean certainly you've probably had to build up a certain toughness, right? I would think that the energy expended by you to have to build up this toughness, to have to deal with that, could have been better used somewhere else, right? Could have been better used uh, expanding your horizons even more than you already have. So to a certain extent, it has been limiting. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to the quote again, just, you know, having to deal with those attitudes, having to deal with, you know, inaccessibility and this preference for, you know, if you can't climb the stairs, you know, too bad for you. You know, that whole idea of ableism uh, is, you know, definitely something exhausting to deal with. And you're absolutely right. You know, if if I didn't have to worry about, you know, am I going to be able to catch the bus on time if I don't get there two hours early and let them know I need the lift? You know, I could spend that time taking a walk in the morning, but it's it's definitely the attitude to the way that society is structured that's more of a tragedy than, you know, having to deal with weak arms and weak legs. As we move on and we're getting towards the end of uh, of the second half hour, and I, I certainly have enjoyed our, our the interview, but also the being able to get to know you during our, our pre-interview. I asked you a question before uh, as to where do you feel comfortable? And what I meant by that was in what space 
do you feel that the wheelchair, the difference goes away, disappears to the extent that it's just not, it's not relevant really. And, And you brought up cosplay. What, what is cosplay? And then maybe we can briefly talk about what uh, Misa on Wheels is. So I remember when you asked me that question, it was an awesome question. And I had said conventions, conventions and cosplay. And cosplay is essentially, you know, dressing up as a fictional character or maybe just in a costume that you created. And, um, you know, some people cosplay for, you know, photo shoots or to create the costume. But for me, it was always going to these conventions like Comic-Cons or anime conventions on the Northeast. And I would say, you know, when you initially asked me that question, that was the first thing to pop into my mind because that was the first place where I felt like I kind of rolled in the door and, you know, everyone was dressed in costume. I wasn't kind of the odd man out in that case. And I was in a costume too, but also with the wheels. Uh, but yeah, it was just... It was just a very um, jarring experience in the best possible way. Who is Misa, by the way? Misa is... So she's actually a character from an anime from like the 2000s called Death Note. And she was just this little blonde goth girl. And I just thought she was great. And I was like, oh, my friends uh, from college are planning to go to a convention in the fall. And I'm like, who am I going to dress up as? And I just happened to be watching that show. And I came across her and I was like, oh, goodness, that's that's her. That's the one I'm going to dress up as. And uh the first time I did, I actually went out of the convention and there was this girl sitting at one of the vendor booths and she called out my costume. She's like, whoa, you're Misa. You're on wheels. So I'm going to call you Misa on wheels. And it just stopped. And, and I, I get the impression from that brief interaction in that space that the wheelchair and the wheels had become another description of you, like the color of your hair or some other just aspect of you. It just that's just a descriptor of you. And it doesn't mean more or less than just that. Am I right in, in that? A hundred percent. It would just be like, you know, if she had called out someone having purple hair and giant wings, like, hey, you're so-and-so with the wings, you're so-and-so. And just a level of comfort and lack of hesitation to be like, hey, I'm cool talking about this. I'm cool saying, hey, look, you're on wheels. That was just so refreshing. When we go to your Facebook page, if people want to like get the same these sayings, if you what would you call? It? I guess are memes. Yeah, memes, a little quotes, things that just kind of pop into my mind, or a little inspirations for the day. Foods for thought. Food for thought, and I will tell you, they really do. They have made me think, and I very much appreciate that. If people want to get these kind of daily uh, food for thought, where do they go? Yeah, definitely. So my biggest, um, I would say, homepage per se is Facebook. I know a lot of people use different platforms, but I've always liked Facebook. And uh, if you go to my page, Misa on Wheels, so it's like uh, Lisa with an M on Wheels. And um, yeah, you just hit the follow button or like, and um, you should start seeing my posts and anything I feel like uh, sharing that day. One more thing. So a number of cool things about you, but one of them is a... Uh, an activity that you greatly enjoy that also puts you on wheels. And you've posted about that before on your Facebook page. If you could briefly talk about that and how you wound up getting into this activity. Definitely. So I believe the activity you're describing is adaptive skateboarding. Correct. So so my brother and I always enjoy like the skate culture and he used to skateboard growing up and I used to play the Tony Hawk Pro Skater uh, games on my PlayStation and just loved it. And uh, just kind of this fun culture, very laid back. And uh, of course, you know, uh, the traditional way to skateboard is standing up and kicking with your foot and something I could never really do. But 
I always loved it and uh, enjoyed watching it on TV. And about five years ago, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to buy a board and sit on it and see what happens. And I did. And I'm like, hey, this is actually easier to push than I thought it would be. You know, maybe I'll just use it for exercise. And uh, I ended up, you know, finding ways to do my own tricks and just modifying, um, you know, things other people had done, like lip tricks and just sitting down. And it's just, it was amazing. And I'm just so glad I went for it. And what's what's so cool about it, and I have to think initially, there is there a fear there? I mean, I, I'd be fearful getting on a skateboard, but I mean, for you, you're overcoming not only the fear of skateboarding, but perhaps some societal expectation, like what what's she doing type thing? I mean, there's different layers. There's more layers I think you might have to go through. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. It was the desire to do it over anything else, like anything else, you know, that might have popped into my mind. I was like, oh, am I going to look silly? You know, or, uh, you know, is my shirt going to look weird if I'm sitting this way or, you know, whatever it may be. Just the first time, you know, I went down a ramp and I landed the thing I was trying to do that time, just a lip trick. And uh, it was just so overwhelming and so thrilling. It was just like, all right, that was the only thing on my mind. And I just had to keep doing it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the... I think that kind of pushed the fear out of my mind as well. And also the fact that I'm lower to the ground than someone sitting up. So there's less of a chance of a bone break. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Amanda, thank you so much for your posts and thank you for educating me and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, David. It's been awesome. And I really appreciate it. This is David Bell. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. It's the 420 Drug War News. Our guest on last week's Cultural Baggage Show was New Zealand doctor Julian Buchanan. My journey's a long one, really. I'll try and keep my story fairly brief or concise. Look, I started back in uh, in Liverpool in, in England back in uh, the 1980s as a probation officer. And uh, it was at that time I knew very little about drugs whatsoever. But uh, the issue was is that heroin became a uh, pandemic across the whole of the UK, particularly in Merseyside at the time. And, and I, was, uh, I was trying to do something about it. And uh, in the end, I, uh, I was trying to get people off drugs. And uh, I realised that wasn't the way forward because I was messing people's lives up. And uh, I then uh, started researching and reading and thinking about alternative approaches I was part of the uh, the Mersey model in in developing harm reduction in the uh, in the mid late 1980s, and I was a drug specialist, and uh, I've never stopped since really because uh, it was a profound period of my life in terms of seeing what was happening and uh, doing something innovative and. Uh, realising that that was the way forward and uh, that issue that we faced back in the 1980s of, of of rushing people off to rehabs and telling them addiction was going to kill them and trying to make them clean and abstinent, uh, realising that that was wrong in the 80s, it's, it's carried on right through to 2022 and uh, here I am now uh, still tackling the same issues, really. Thank you for that. And um, I... Uh... You know, I, I told him you were one of the last people um, providing heroin uh, to those in Great Britain before the U.S. kind of came along and declared this all-out drug war. That's right. That's right. In uh, in Merseyside, I worked with Dr. John Marks. Now, I'm 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 a, a doctor with a PhD. I'm not a medical doctor, so I was uh, I wasn't officially prescribing heroin, 
but uh, but we were writing the prescriptions because we worked as a team with uh, I worked with a team as Dr. John Marks and then subsequently with uh, Dr. Tim Garvey, who were both psychiatrists, and they took a very team approach, a, a multidisciplinary team approach. So there's a group of us, uh, community psychiatric nurses, uh, social services counsellors, uh, a HIV worker, and uh, two of us who were drug, drug workers, probation officers. And we would all uh, have a pad of prescriptions, and we would, we would decide virtually what people had and uh, write the prescriptions uh, for them. Again, that was Dr. Julian Buchanan. More on tomorrow's report. I'm Dean at DrugTruth.net. enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff, or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 